Hello, and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback, and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Nicola Torbett. I'm one of many lay leaders at First Congregational Church of Oakland. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. So, hi. It's been a few weeks since I've done one of these podcasts, and it feels as if so much has happened since then. White supremacist rallies in cities across the country, the termination of DACA, the reinstatement of the Department of Defense Program 1033, which provides surplus militarized weaponry to police departments. And then there are the hurricanes and wildfires and earthquakes. How are you holding up in the midst of it all? How do you stay grounded? No, really, how do you stay grounded? For me, it helps to come right into this present moment. In fact, will you join me in doing that right now? What are five things you can see right now from where you're listening? Five things you can hear. What are five things you can feel? What do you smell? Is there anything that you can taste? So now here we are in this moment. This is the starting point. It helps me to remember in times that often feel overwhelming that we have only this moment, this place where we now find ourselves. We are right here in this moment. And then before we know it, this moment too is gone. And now we are here and now here. Most of us like to think that we can predict the future based on the past Our minds are constantly seeking patterns, but we actually have no guarantees beyond this moment. We can't assume that today will look exactly like yesterday or last week at this time. And these days, we may do better to assume that tomorrow, for better or for worse, is going to be different from anything we have ever known in this country. We are in uncharted territory. We are in a kind of wilderness time, a time full of great uncertainty and potential danger. And that's really scary. Let's be real about that. But let's also put this moment in its historical context. Truth is, this country has been a terrifying place for people of color since its inception. It has been a place of genocide and exploitation and violence, a place of constant surveillance and profiling and threat, a place where the threat of deportation, forced removal, or worse, has always been in the air. 
Those things continue now, but they are being forced out into the open. Suddenly we are talking about the deportations that have happened by the thousands under the radar. Suddenly the media are being forced to report on the killing of unarmed black people by police. Suddenly, after Standing Rock, we are talking about and learning from the indigenous people of this land that many of us thought were gone. We are having to look at the ways in which capitalism exploits the quiet underground assumptions of white supremacy in order to make a profit. That conversation was hardly happening two years ago. Certainly it wasn't happening on a national scale or in the mainstream media. So yes, this wilderness time is uncertain. It's scary. It is shaking us up. It has shaken up our worldviews, our comfortable assumptions about the world. It is shaking up institutions and systems that we had assumed were unshakable. It's scary. But it may also be hopeful. It may also be an opportunity, an invitation to learn a new way of living together, of feeding and nurturing each other, of struggling together, and of standing up for each other. How will we respond here at the edge of a great mystery when we are no longer who we were even a year ago, but are not yet who we are becoming? How will we respond in this moment and then this moment and then the next? It feels appropriate to be reading Exodus in the lectionary at this time. It feels appropriate to meet the ancient Israelites in their wilderness time these followers of Yahweh, the God who goes by the mysterious name of I will be who I will be, these faithful have left behind Egypt. They have been dramatically rescued out of the land called Mitzrayim, which means literally the narrow and constricted place. The followers of Yahweh have entered out of a narrow and constricted place, a place of oppression into a wilderness place, a wide open, uncharted land where nothing is familiar and the destination is unknown. And in this week's text, all that uncertainty is getting old. Courage, sisters, don't get lectionary focus for this week is Exodus, the 16th chapter, verses 2 through 15, in which the congregation of Israelites out in the wilderness complain bitterly against Moses and Aaron, saying, if only we had died back in Egypt when we sat around the meat pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. The meat pots. I want to talk about these meat pots because they feel so familiar to me. They stand in for something that at some level I think we all know about. The meat pots represent the tangible material benefits 
And we're not talking about perks or frivolous extras, but real survival benefits that we receive in exchange for participating in exploitative and unjust systems. These are painful realities that I spent most of my life as a white American trying not to think about. For example, it's really only been since I moved to California in 2006, only since I took that first drive down Highway 101 past the lettuce fields or crossed into the Central Valley on Highway 4 past all those beautiful almond groves or driven through wine country on a sunny fall day that I really seriously thought about where my food comes from and who does the labor to bring it from seed to supermarket and what that labor is like. I have to be honest, I would rather not know. I would rather not have to think about the days in the broiling heat, the high rates of cancer and birth defects among immigrant farm workers who toil all day in fields sprayed by pesticides, I would rather tune out the stories of whole families smuggled into this country than held involuntarily in the stifling hot trailers of semi-trucks, except for the time they are allowed out to harvest lettuce for my salad. I would rather not have to wonder if that brown-skinned man selling strawberries in the sun along the roadside is free to come and go, if he has health care, if he is able to feed his own family, I would rather not know because I still need to eat. But the thing is, I can't unknow these things. I can't unhear these stories. And I can't help having to wonder about these human beings whose lives are made so difficult by the systems and structures that nourish me and everyone else in this country. And of course, Food is just one of the necessities, one of the meat pots that relies upon exploitation and violence against people of color. There is also the clothing made in sweatshops, the electronics made from cobalt mined by children in the Congo, and then built in Chinese factories where workers work mandatory overtime and live on site. There is the meat pot of electronics, the meat pot of clothing, and then there is the meat pot of public safety. Those police officers who came to my classroom when I was in first grade and who talked about how their job was to protect us, and I believed them, who told us we could rely on them, these police officers who rescued kittens out of trees in the small, all-white Midwestern town where I grew up, but who are also charged with keeping a peace that is really no peace for communities of color that was certainly no peace for Mike Brown or Alton Sterling or Eric Garner or Sandra Bland or Philando Castile or Kayla Moore or their families or their friends or their communities or anyone who looks like them. The same police force is the meat pot I have been set up to rely upon for my safety. These are just some of the meat pots of white supremacy sources of sustenance that I rely upon day to day, what would it mean to defect from this particular narrow place called white supremacy, called systemic racism? Now, I want to be clear as I ask that question that I am no Hebrew slave. I am not suffering the full force of imperial oppression. 
Instead, as a white American, I am positioned more as an Egyptian than as a Hebrew. Oh, I'm not Pharaoh, certainly. Not even anyone in his court or the surrounding nobility. But a kind of middle management Egyptian, playing my relatively minor role in keeping the systems running and receiving in exchange the benefits that come from living in a militarily mighty and financially prosperous empire. I'd like to think with you for a few minutes about these middle management roles in oppressive systems, because I suspect that's where many of us find ourselves. I'll start by talking some about some of my own roles within the current system. First of all, I'm a minor league religious leader, and while I do my best to follow a God who liberates, the powers are doing their best to use me to keep people in line and preserve an unjust status quo. I'll give you an example. About a year and a half ago, many of my friends and comrades were arrested at a march called Say Her Name that was lifting up the memory of black women who have been killed by police. They were arrested because the mayor, in the wake of several large Black Lives Matter protests, had quietly instituted a protest curfew, stipulating that any demonstration after nightfall would be considered unlawful. As I sat that night in horror, watching the live stream of my friends, most of them black women, singing as they waited to be handcuffed, my cell phone rang. It was another comrade, a Buddhist leader, who was also watching and weeping. We decided that we had to respond, so we quickly pulled together an interfaith vigil scheduled deliberately for sunset the following night. Our intention with that timing was to put the mayor, the city manager, and the police in a moral bind. Would they enforce the curfew? and arrest a bunch of religious leaders as we prayed at City Hall, did walking meditation in the street? Or would they turn a blind eye to us, revealing the true purpose of the curfew, which was to target black protesters who are perceived as more threatening? Well, by two o'clock the next afternoon, I had received two phone calls, an email, and a Facebook message from the mayor's office, all letting me know that the mayor was eager to speak with me that afternoon. My Buddhist comrade had been contacted as well. Now you have to understand, neither of us had ever been able to get a personal audience with the mayor of our mid-sized city to talk about the housing crisis, or the overinflated police budget, or the lack of community mental health services, or any of the other issues facing our city. She was not the least bit interested in hearing from us under ordinary circumstances. But suddenly, in the hours before our vigil, we were on her call list. And we thought about it. I prayed about it. My colleagues sat in meditation and we realized we could not meet with her on our own. Because you see, we knew what she wanted to do. She wanted to convince us to call off the vigil. She wanted to negotiate with us, two faith leaders of a certain amount of privilege, while our black activist comrades sat in the county jail. She wanted to talk to us, when actually those women were the people she needed to talk with, and in fact apologized to. 
And so we wrote the mayor an open letter explaining that we could not meet with her under these circumstances, but that if she would free our people from jail with an apology and revoke the curfew, which was probably unconstitutional anyway, we would call off the vigil. As you might imagine, we received no reply. Now you have to understand that in taking this stand in solidarity with our comrades in jail, we had to forsake the meat pot of an audience with the mayor, this time and probably for all time. In fact, I'll say parenthetically that I've been up close to the mayor a few times since then. And the one time I got a chance to introduce myself, she gave me an icy look and said, oh, I know who you are. Now, I also want to acknowledge that I had the privilege of alienating the mayor because I don't rely on her office for any of the funding of church programs that many of my colleagues have to rely on. Funding is another meat pot used to keep faith and nonprofit leaders from disrupting the unjust status quo too much. We encountered the same effort by city officials to co-opt religious leaders a few weeks ago when we were organizing counter-protests to the planned alt-right rally in Berkeley. The city used religious leaders, many of the same people we were trying to organize, to ask folks to avoid coming downtown at all that day, to stay away, or to attend events far from the fascist rally downtown. In other words, to mute our public witness. I saw and I empathized with how difficult it was for clergy and other would-be civic leaders to avoid doing as the city asked them. Many succumbed, but some did not. I'll also say just briefly that my other work and my primary source of income, another meat pot, is as a dog walker and pet sitter, tent making work that I have chosen because it allows me a relatively flexible schedule so that I can do unpaid justice work. However, even in this working class profession, my ability to find enough work to survive relies upon my clients keeping their mostly middle management positions within the empire. So I am by no means free of responsibility for the violence of the prevailing systems, even as a dog walker. So by now, you're probably wondering if there is any hope at all, given how dependent we all are on the meat pots of white supremacy and the rapacious profit motive it serves. I believe that there is. Pastor and biblical scholar Laurel Dykstra reminds us in her book called Set Them Free, The Other Side of Exodus, that there have always been members of the dominant culture who have sided with the oppressed of their society, who have broken rank with the norms of their society and renounced the privileges afforded to them. She cites, for example, the midwives, Shifra and Pua, whose names actually suggest that they were not Hebrews, as readers often assume, but Egyptian midwives who refused to obey the Pharaoh's order to kill the Hebrew babies. I imagine that there were many Egyptians who took risks to help the Hebrews both before and during their escape. I imagine there were Egyptians who hated the ideology of Egyptian supremacy and the way that their lives had been set up to benefit from it. 
I imagined that there were Egyptians who came to despise their lives as they were and who longed for a degree of mutuality and equality and deep community that they could only just barely conceive from within the Egyptian empire, the narrow place. I imagine that there were even those who defected, who went with the Hebrews through the Red Sea passage and into the wilderness, where they learned alongside their former servants and slaves how to be human beings again, how to be God's covenant people, how to be beloved community to each other. Because here's the thing, I believe, I know deep down in my soul that God has so much more for us than meat pots. God has such incredible gifts of joy and deep community and full aliveness in store for us in the promised land, but it's going to take us a little while to get there, to be ready. We've got some unlearning to do, some recovering some healing from the ways that our humanity has been mangled and distorted to fit within inhumane systems. And the only way, the only way for people of privilege to do that recovery work is to get into solidarity with those who have suffered most. I believe that that is what it means to be saved. My friend and mentor, Reverend Lenise Pinkard, likes to say, we are not individually salvageable. There is no such thing as personal salvation. Salvation is communal. It is all of us or none. We have to leave behind the meat pots of white supremacy, but it is not possible for us to walk away alone. We can't do it. We can't survive in the wilderness alone. We can only escape by working together to find, create, invent new means of survival, new sources of nourishment, new ways of working, new ways of keeping each other safe. We have to defect together, and we have to do it by following the lead of those who have been most affected, because they have the clearest understanding of what we do not want to replicate. Now that's gonna be challenging, because the people who have suffered in ways that have benefited us have no reason to trust us. They are not always going to want us around. That's part of what I find so interesting about the dynamic between the community and Moses. Because you know, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. He was raised to be Egyptian. And when he finally came to consciousness about his position, he went a little crazy, remember? and he killed an overseer, putting the whole Hebrew community at risk. That's the kind of mistakes we are likely to make as white people. And so we are not fully trustworthy, and yet we have to join in. That means we have to walk away from the meat pot of being universally beloved and acclaimed. We are being beckoned into the wilderness, my friends. And this wilderness, it's confusing. There's a lot of uncertainty. Sometimes we are gonna miss the way things used to be. Sometimes we are gonna miss the days when we knew where our next meal was coming from. But we can't go back to what we know because what we know is white supremacy. What we know is settler colonialism and all the belief systems that grew up around it to support and justify it. 
what we know is patriarchy and heteronormativity and rigid gender roles. What we know is capitalism and the so-called common sense that justifies and bolsters it. We can't go back. And yet, it is often unclear how to go forward. We have only this force of nature, this pillar of cloudy longing, this bright light of hope to follow. How will we be sustained? How will we survive in this in-between place, wandering between captivity and a promise? What is the manna? What are the quail that God is providing for us in this wilderness time? The thing about manna is that it's not always immediately recognizable as food. I think it's really important to remember that the Israelites named that flaky white substance on the grass manna, or possibly man, which is the Egyptian word for what, as in what the bleep. I wonder, are there unexpected new relationships that God is bringing into your life? Relationships that might feel uncomfortable or unsettling? Are you being challenged in new ways? Are you feeling less certain of your old familiar convictions? Are there surprising new ideas shaking up your worldview right now? Do you find that you are being asked to collaborate more across differences rather than going solo, as maybe has been your habit? Are you finding that the sources of spiritual nourishment that used to work for you are no longer satisfying? that you are hungry for something more pungent, something maybe a little more gamey, a little wilder. It's not always easy to be grateful for newness. You might find yourself, what the bleep? But remember what Moses and Aaron say to the people, in the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. When you find yourself being fed with new and unexpected food in these coming weeks, know that you are being provided for by a loving God, that God is leading you out of a narrow place, and that you are being made ready for the promised land, which is not a place, but a life. That same rich, juicy, communal life that Jesus called eternal life, or the kingdom of God. To paraphrase Rumi, out beyond the structures of white supremacy, there is a wilderness. I'll meet you there. Amen. I'd like to ask you to spend some time identifying the meat pots that keep you in captivity to the world as it is and that weaken your will to resist injustice. How is your income bound up in existing systems and structures that don't actually serve all life? How are your habits of consumption supporting exploitative labor practices and dangerous working conditions?
do you have relationships to people in power or people in the ruling class that you are hesitant to jeopardize? Do you rely on funding from people who don't actually welcome a fundamental challenge to the sources of their wealth? What might alternative sources of sustenance look like? What would they look like if you moved toward living and working in community so that you can share resources? I want to encourage you to think about these questions not alone but in community because we can't effectively resist the seductions of empire alone. We need each other for mutual support and resourcing. A second practice that you might undertake is to move some of your charitable giving from tax-exempt nonprofits to support for individuals and unincorporated activist collectives who are doing liberation work. This is one practical way that we can help God distribute some manna. I'll list some live GoFundMe sites, including one to the bail fund for activists in St. Louis, which you may know is in the middle of a big struggle fighting police impunity this week. I'll list those in the resources section of the transcript. If you'd like more information about the problems with the nonprofit industrial complex, I recommend the book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded by the Insight Collective. There's a lot of meat pots in there. I'll put more information about this resource in the transcript as well. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Please let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Next week, Reverend Ann Dunlap will take on the lectionary text for October 1st, so be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. Rise, shine, give up.